Hey, good morning. You are listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King, and I have special guest, Kathy Durfee, CEO and founder of Tech House in Florida. Kathy uh, has a managed services provider, which is like an IT services provider company, and she services uh, her local clients. I think national national clients, too, don't you? Yeah. And uh, she does Microsoft 365 and QuickBooks Consulting. And like a consulting provider, helping people set up their QuickBooks, right? And doing automations in it. What else do you do with QuickBooks and and M365? Give us a quick little overview. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks, Felicia, for having me on the show. Excited to be here. Uh, Yeah, we do uh, QuickBooks consulting. We help people move to the cloud, get M365 secure, do D365 and work process type work. So basically- dynamics. Yeah. So if you're a small mid-market and you work within the Microsoft or QuickBooks arena, then we make it our point to be able to be helpful to you to get to your goals. So Dynamics 365 is an ERP. Yes, ERP, Salesforce automation and customer service automation, sort of that. How about the accounting side too? We... We don't do a ton with the new accounting product that they have. We did a lot with the older versions. Um, the newer version, Business Central, has been, I'll say the dust has been settling on it. So um, we've got a little bit there, but not as much. So did you do uh, Great Plains and yes. Solomon? Yes, our focus and... was GP. Yeah, Great okay. Plains originally. Okay, yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, that I, it's that's kind of my wheelhouse too, but oh, not. Okay. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't get into it. I just make it all work. Uh, the, gotcha. you know, the server and the infrastructure and securing it and GMSA accounts and backing it all up and making it, you know, super wonderful. <laughs> I don't tinker on the inside of the database. <laughs> we enjoy making the application work from a functional perspective. And what we really love is the data and analytics that you can do on top. That's when things get really fun. Oh, yeah. well, that's true with any accounting system. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Almost yeah. any system, really. <laughs> well, Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. So Dynamics is interesting to me because, uh, you know, it can be an ERP competitor, especially in the cloud basis, especially with all the integrations with M365 across the board. Um, so anyways, that wasn't the topic of our <laughs> conversation today, uh, but good lead in. Uh, the, the topic we wanted to cover today was uh, dark web monitoring, uh, dark web breach monitoring, and Really, we're going to pick that topic apart pretty substantially, I think. So uh, let's start with a concrete example of, tell us about real world example that uh, you encountered where a client felt they had a need and uh, they were questioning whether or not you should be providing that service to them. So fill us in on that. Yeah, absolutely. So we had a customer contact us very, very worried because they received a report um, from another organization and their understanding of that report was that multiple users in their environment had been breached in their environment. I think that's probably one of the really important things is the, the report was understood to be indicating that there's something called the dark web and the dark web was almost a monster that was coming into their environment and sort of attacking their environment. And the perceived proof in the pudding was a, a report that had a lot of scary, actually like shadow-like images on it. They look kind of scary, even to me, honestly, these characters, they had cartoon characters. Um, but then they had a listing of the users and a, a few characters of the password and then columns that the customer had no idea what they meant. And so that 
listing made the customer feel like, wow, this person's been in my environment. And because some of these users were 5, 10, 15 years old, they've been in there for a really long time, these bad actors. And, and that's what the customer came to me like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? I'm so scared. Okay. So then what happened? <laughs> so I shouldn't say they came to me. They came to one of my team members and said that. And so um, a little bit of a tornado happened in-house because the customer was so concerned. They wanted yeah. to alleviate the customer's concern because we knew clearly that employees from 10 years ago were not breached today. I mean, that doesn't even make any sense. So, um, so we gathered um, a little information. We asked for a copy of the report, you know, that type of thing to see what was driving this and asked to meet with the customer to, you know, be able to communicate with them first what this report was. And, you know, it's interesting because the last thing you want to do is say, oh, you know, speak poorly of any other organization, but you also want the customer to have the clear objective information so that they can make good decisions. So we needed to be able to go help them understand what the report was clear up the fog of fear, I'll call it. And, uh, and then also help them understand, you know, where they are in the continuum of risk, like what choices have they made so far? We've had multiple, we, I mean, we literally had a conversation with them in December <laughs> about increasing some risk parts, uh, excuse me, some security protection to mitigate risk. So it, that was part of it was, you know, where are you? Where do you want to be? What level of risk are you comfortable with? Nothing's perfect, but Helping them just have a firmer foundation is where we were headed. Good. So uh, I got involved at some point because you yes. popped me an email, right? Yes. So, thank you, so, Felicia. So, <laughs> tell me about that part of the story. Okay. So, um, so when we were trying, when we were thinking about, all right, you know, how do we respond to this customer who's really concerned? I wanted to make sure that I understood. What's really possible today? I'll say in the land of cybersecurity in particular, more so than other areas of tech, you know, I could finish reading the most recent thing that happened and go get a glass of water and come back and wonder if I'm still up to date. I mean, just <laughs> things just change. And Felicia, you are the expert in my life when it comes to security. So it's like this customer is quite concerned. I want to make sure that we're not missing anything. So I reached out to Felicia. Hey, could you help me understand you know, your perspective of what I'm looking at, what tools are available. And a little bit of it's that feeling of I'm not going crazy, right? Like I didn't miss something big because the customer is so concerned. Like I, I'm not closing my eyes to something that I don't realize I'm closing my eyes to. So being able to reach out to someone eligible like yourself and and understand what, you know, we could be doing or should be doing or, you know, if we're missing anything. Yeah. So I got you an answer pretty quick there. And what did you think yes, about you're amazing. the answer? <laughs> So what did you think about the answer? Um, super helpful. As I will say the, um, the gentleman who does security for us was basically, that's what I said, Kathy. So that's probably unfair sometimes when I do that, which I'm sure other, I'll just, I'll just blame it on entrepreneurialism. I don't know, or something, but you know, sometimes you just want that additional perspective. Um, but well, yeah, you know that on it, that. What, let me comment on that a little bit. I, yes. I, I don't think that um, anyone should ever have their feathers ruffled by uh, a business risk decision maker attempting 
to utilize the personnel in their brain trust to gather enough data points to uh, assure them. Like um, I have a client that has many business owners. They have multiple business owners. They have got like 30 business units and, you know, there's presidents of the different business units. So there's like a lot of people involved, right? Like a lot of people. And, you know, we need the executive management team to make good risk decisions. And they can't, they ultimately own the risk no matter what. They can delegate risk management at the end of the day, they still own the risk, right? So business decision makers need to be facilitated to make good risk decisions. Well, if they don't have the expertise to make the decisions themselves and to evaluate the whole thing from head to end all by themselves, nobody should ever think bad about them asking kind of the hive mind. So uh, it, typically what happens with this one client is I'll write a little paper and I'll be like, this is the situation. I've evaluated. This is my recommendation. And then the executive management team goes, ah, because, because, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm delicate and polite and tactful and so forth, but I'm also, also very truthful. And, and it doesn't mean that I'm blunt and rude about it. Right. But it's stuff they don't want to hear because it's the truth. Okay. So, like you need to make a decision about this. And that's usually what it says. Right. This is the problem. This is the answer. I need you to make a decision about it. You don't have to do what I ask, but you need to make a decision because we can't, because do nothing is not an option, right? So I never get my feelings hurt when they walk down to the IT department and they ask the guys in IT. So what do you think about the thing? And then, because it's very powerful when they are hearing, you know, they're hearing my analysis in written format. And then the IT, the IT guys are like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? Nice. so, so it, you know, if anybody ever gets a little, you know, if they get their feathers ruffled because you're asking for a second opinion. I, I you know, don't don't be concerned about that. I, I think that it's a prudent, good risk decision process to tap into your knowledge or resources that you have available to you. Um, I, I will differentiate that though from a process that says, we're gonna kick this out to bid. Cause then you get three different engineered designs. If you want three bids, you're gonna get three different engineered designs, three different architecture that's not apples to apples, you know. I totally agree with that one. The minute you're approaching a problem with design embedded within the solution and you're trying to do an apples to apples, it's not possible. No, it's not possible at all. Until the design's complete, you, you don't, you can't do really a, an apples to apples. Yeah, so it, so it sounds like you, so I gave you confirmation what your internal guy was saying. As well as you, you know, with your expertise, yes. And, and I wanna be careful. <laughs> I, I don't wanna say it all feathers ruffled, but uh, just he was, and also he's good at, keeping the humor so um but but he, yes your advice was what he had said which is this was a FUD scenario right this was somebody coming in and providing information that would generate fear in the customer and that was unfortunately I don't know their intent but it sure seemed like the intent of the of the yeah. um of the quote report <laughs> yeah. um but but another benefit of being able to speak with you is you have a broad understanding of a wide variety of tools, right? So you you were able to bring to us, hey, 
you know, consider these tools, which we did not use. We used diff some different tools, but, and so that was helpful also to get these additional tools um, to think about when we were talking with the customer. Mostly I just felt like I had way more ammo and going back to the customer and I felt much more comfortable, especially with the FUT, because I don't know, you know, everybody's different, but for me, I truly try hard not to um, speak poorly of another organization that I don't even know. Right. <laughs> I've never met the people before. I don't know what caused them to do what they're doing. So I don't want to say that what they're doing was not a good idea. I, I just don't have enough information for that. But on the other hand, for my customer to take that and it, it ruined her day enough that she was speaking. She wanted to speak to us while driving in rush hour traffic, right? Like she was that concerned, like, hey, you know, <laughs> it's probably creating, introducing some additional risk here. Um, Eyes on the road. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you know that they're just really, you know, there's no reason for that suffering to happen. So. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, so let's break this down then from a technical yeah. perspective. Um, so let's start with, we had a report that mm -hmm. was fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So when we say FUD, yes. we're talking about fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And also to be clear, uh, you and I don't believe that that is a viable or valid sales tactic whatsoever. Um, nope. And I, I and you know, <laughs> no. my sales approach is uh, I just tell clients what they need. And that's after me having done a whole lot of R&D work on my own time trying to find something that has a very low total cost of ownership with high levels of functionality so that we can deliver them high quality solutions sustainably and affordably. All right. And I'm sure you're doing exactly the same thing. Yes. And you are like us, very education driven. We very much want to empower our customers with enough education to help them make the decision because it's their organization at the end of the day. Right. And, and like right. you said, they have to decide at the end of the day, how much risk to bear in this area versus any other type of risk, the financial risk of reallocating their assets in a different way. I mean, everything's just, every business owner knows it's you're juggling, right? You're just trying to figure out where to apply everything. So yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's what we mean by FUD. And now let's talk about breach, dark web breach monitoring in general, just as a general concept here. So dark web monitoring refers to breaches have happened. There's usually combinations of email addresses, username, first name, last name, potentially other PII in there like addresses and so forth. You know, there's a lot of this data that has been breached repeatedly through, you know, what? Thousands of platforms that have gotten breached. And that data sits out there on these dark web sites and it is for sale. There are... Uh, a variety of aggregators of this information. And they have these services. They originally saw it as a revenue source. And they said, ah, well, we're going to tap into FUD and we're going to create a revenue source. And, you know, the question I always had, and I could go back to probably 2014, I remember this topic. And I was thinking at the time that you know, so, so, you know, the data's out there on a breach website. So what? So what? Who cares, right? What actually is the risk? If you have that data, what are you going to do with it? So are you going to get this report and go call up each one of the users and have them change their password? Well, how do you even know that that's the current password in production? Maybe they, maybe 
breach was from five years ago and they've changed their password 12 times since. <laughs> um, what if their account has multi-factor authentication on it, right? So what risk exactly is in place? So when you talk to your client about this, how did you describe what is the real risk here? 100%. I am really glad you mentioned that because I think that was the, that was the most calming thing for her is to understand better what she was looking at. So one of the most, one thing that came out in the very beginning of the conversation is she thought this report, this dark web breach report meant that an organization like something, this dark web monster had entered her network environment with these users and was in there doing bad stuff. Like she, because like the word active breach. breach. Yeah. So, the, you know, she hears, she hears this word breach and she's like, somebody's in my environment, my environment. Yeah. My company, my organization's environment. And they've broken through the walls and, and tech house, you helped us set up all this security, but you didn't know about it. But this guy's got a printed report about it. And so uh, the first thing we had to clarify is this listing of passwords. It's not a listing of passwords. Somebody pulled by hacking into your organization. And that was really critical. That's what she thought the report was telling her. So to say, no, 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 that's not what we're saying. We're saying there are organizations, and fortunately or unfortunately, we were aware of a few organizations that she had worked with that had had breaches. So she knew about it, you know. So we were able to reference those and go, hey, do you remember this company that was breached last year that we talked about because you guys had some IDs there? And so these listings are the IDs and passwords that have been pulled from those companies. I mean, they could have a five-year history, just like you said, who knows from when? I mean, maybe they pulled it, maybe someone breached a particular large organization and they pulled out user IDs and passwords that have been stored for who knows how long. I mean, you just don't know. I've seen some of the stuff going back to 2007, which is, you know, absolutely useless. Right. And, and the funny thing is, is because, like you said, the aggregators, the combo people. So the the date of the the breach on this report, one of them said April 22nd. And then the source of this list, this ID on this list was a combo aggregator. And the user ID was a user from over 10 years ago. She's like, how did they breach into my account in April of 2022 with a user? I'm like, well, hold on, hold on. We got to unravel this whole thing. This is not saying they got into your account, right? <laughs> and this combo thing is it means it's not even the original breach. It's like an aggregator. So some other breach probably happened. So it was, I think it was, uh, I know it was very helpful to her to have that understanding. And it was very calming to her to know this wasn't a report indicating an active breach. Good. Okay, so if you were going to have dark web monitoring for a client, and you were gonna get a report. The process would be, you'd have to look at this data and then literally like call up each one of the end users and say, you know, is this actually your password? And more often than not, on the, you know, I mean, it's just a dumb process, right? I mean, who on earth wants to pay, do that? And who on earth wants to pay for that, right? So what's what I found interesting is that the, the technology stupidness that existed in 2014, uh, some of these, you, you know, there's these other pieces of technology that we would, that we need for other reasons, like password managers or uh, cybersecurity awareness and phishing testing, phishing training sort of mm -hmm. platforms. And, and there were, there 
became after like 2016, there became a lot of platforms that just started to integrate that data. Like WatchGuard had it available. So more and more and more, these tools that you have other reasons to have, because everybody needs cybersecurity awareness training, right? right? Everybody needs a phishing testing and phishing training and everybody needs a password manager. And all three of those in this organization now, admittedly, sometimes they would shut them off for a while and then buy them again. But over time, this organization has used all three of those for sure. Yeah. And so then it becomes a matter of uh, which one of the tools is providing the most benefit. And more often than not, you're better off to get the benefit from all the tools that you have. Like um, we have a what they call like a. It's a customer engagement portal, basically. We use it as a compliance portal as well. Uh, it clearly knows the email addresses of the people. Now all that dark web data is right there. It's presented right there. So that's one resource. What's really cool is the password manager that we use, if the end user has put in the username and password that they're actively using in production, this is the cool part. The password manager application knows their current username and password. The password manager application also has access to the databases that are in the dark web breaches. Now it can, because it knows the password, the password manager application knows the current active password. It can compare that with the dark web password and it'll tell you like big giant, you know, neon lights flashing <laughs> in your face, you know, as the end user that, hey, this thing is breached. So like that's the perfect kind of tool because that kind of a tool, it tells the end user directly. It gives them very specific actionable intel. Now our job, you know, as the IT service provider or as the CISO is to make sure that they have that end user training, that they're keeping their eyes open for that. And they understand that when their password manager tells them, hey, you've got a breached password, that they know they got to get on that like the hotcakes. Now, the, our other job is to make sure that they have multi-factor authentication enabled on everything. All right. Uh, so the cybersecurity awareness training platforms, the really good ones, are also doing kind of overall risk scoring too. So it's like, have your people participated appropriately in the cybersecurity awareness training? Are they? How are they doing with the phishing testing? You know, are they participating in the phishing? Um, training. If they click on the link, did they get the training? Did they do the training? Did they score well? Uh, what's their other behavior patterns? And then, oh, gee, these people are also in dark web breaches. So your really good platforms will do score aggregation and will again present that data to the end user. So you see the theme song I'm telling you here, right? Which is present the data to the end user. We have got to get this live, actionable security intel directly in the hot little hands of each individual end user, eliminate the friction for them to solve the problem themselves. Give them the training so they know about multi-factor authentication. They're diligent about using their password manager. Yes, that needs to be backed by a company policy. Um, but then some oversight you know, by IT. Like, you know, you can, if you're using a really good password manager system, IT, they're not going to be able to know what your passwords are, but they can see whether or not you have any active breached accounts. You know, you have any entries in your password manager who have current passwords 
that are the same as the passwords on the breach sites, okay? Um, so the cool thing is that tools now exist to do this stuff. Tools didn't exist. I mean, I could not have had this conversation with you two years ago. The tools just were not cool enough. But, you know, now now they are, right? So I remember years ago, I was telling clients, like, oh, we want dark web monitoring. I'm like, what are you going to do with the data? What, what literally, what risk do you think you're mitigating? Like, it would be a lot better if we did a project saying, let's just inventory where all of our stinking accounts are. Because you can't secure what the hell you don't know where it is. So did we do a project to inventory all of the accounts? Well, if you haven't done that first, that's probably where you should spend your money, not on dark web monitoring. You know, I, I love what you said there, because I think the prioritization of attack is huge, right? Darn well, make sure MFA is in place. Make sure that yeah. your team is trained, right? I mean, if these things are not happening, then you're going to be monitoring a lot of breaches, right? So how is that really helping? So I do think that the, the, the prevention is such an important part um, yes. in addition to detection kind of go in that NIST thing there, but um, trying to have that prevention in there. I wanted to say one more thing that I, I strongly believe in, and I'm so grateful the tools are taking this approach, which is the individual being in the driver's seat of being able to manage and control risk that is best managed and controlled by them, which is in all the risk. But I think there are parts of the risk that are really best in man managed and controlled by them. It's helpful to us that some of the browsers now let you know that you're using a password that you know might be somewhere on the web, right? So I think there's I think the the users having a little bit of like consumer type experience with this, same with MFA. MFA was very hard to convince until social media and the banking industry started requiring two-factor. Now it's a lot easier to help people understand why that's important. So I am grateful for that momentum or those waves of that are supporting this, but yeah, putting that individual in the driver's seat, they're not by themselves, but for their own environment. I think that's, that is game changing of us being able to get a step ahead of the bad, bad actors. You know, in any organization, you're always going to have different end users. You know, you, you're going to have the ones that are really diligent about their training and they're, they're really engaged and, and they want to be empowered. And then, you know, you've got the ones who think that they're so super special and they're so important <laughs> that they don't need to take the training and you know oh, are, I, they, are, are they are they're convinced they won't be able to learn it right there's that group as well well, well yeah yeah there is kinda... there is the negative self-taught group but they're not the problem <laughs> children right the problem children's are are like i'm too busy for that i'm too important for that security oh, is it's problem no no security is everybody's problem <laughs> <laughs> you know i've had people say to me before um we want MFA for the whole organization except for the executive team. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> wait, let, let's talk back again why we're doing this thing because <laughs> I think the executive team really should have MFA on their accounts. Wow. I mean, so, you know, let's, um, you know, what that's almost like is it's almost like we're going to take every soldier and buy them body armor right, and give them training. But then we're going to take the president in a bikini <laughs> on a beach with some terrorists <laughs> and there's no protection around. <laughs> <laughs> 
because let's just take the whale and put him out there with no protections at all yeah yeah for sure and so i mean that that's the fundamental paradigm problem right there so years ago i did this well not years ago i don't know it was like a year and a half two years ago now i i I did this podcast where i was talking about um the real reason you can't afford to get breached and it was around this conversation i kept having with certain clients where they're like get breached there's nobody wants any of my crap and i'm like yes we've heard that before i'm like look here's the primary foundational problem you tell me you're so dang busy you know what you don't have you don't have time to deal with a breach you don't have time (laughs) to be inconvenienced so even if you say i got all the money in the world nobody wants my data we're not going to go out of business. We're not going to have reputational impact. You know, even if you say all of that horse hockey, and let's just call it horse hockey because that's what it is, right? Even if you say all that horse hockey, people should care, especially these busy people should care about it is going to be a black hole of time suckage out of their life. It is going to steal their personal private time, their family time, their exercise time, their mental health time, and Lord knows it's going to steal all their time that they would normally be spending doing productive revenue generating things. And you're never going to get that time back. So that is the number one reason that people should try to not get breached. And they, these people in the executive channel need to understand that they are the target. They are not only the public face of the company, there's the most social engineering data about them. And generally, they've got access to the goodies, right? So in reality, what we need to have here is some specialty executive-based training, (laughs) which means they go through extra training. I remember years ago, we used to have executive training for the office products. And that wasn't because it was faster or more lightweight by any means. Mm -hmm. It was longer, more high touch. And understandably, you know, owners of companies <laughs> like myself, I mean, I think sometimes you just have a lot on your mind. Everybody does. Um, but you're, because of your position, you're allowed to say, hey, I have a lot on my mind, so I can't do that. You know, other people, they have to do it. So someone has to say, yeah, no, I know you got a lot on your mind, but no, you, you still have to do this. I'm sorry. Well, you know, that's part about leading from the front too, is you can't exactly expect to have a, a whole team of individuals who want to follow you really well and um, who respect you when you won't do the cybersecurity awareness training and you won't sign off on the company policies. Yeah, accurate. You know, there's another group that I we do run into as well that's it's a difficult um, scenario sometimes to talk through and probably other people have run into this and I'll say sort of security denial that, you know, how bad can the risk really be? Are there really actors out there to, you know, is it really that common? And without the personal experience of it, I I think that there can be this sense of, is this really a thing? This, this cyber security, you know, hacker thing, is that, is that really a thing? in my whatever, my industry, my size company, my region, my whatever bucket is being defined as being outside the scope of risk. So there was, 
you know, I've had to be involved in a, a number of breaches on behalf of other parties, not my clients. Fortunately, we've never actually had a client that was really breached. Yeah, there's been some stupid little email stuff, you know, but <laughs> that, that's a giant nothing burger, right? You know that, okay? Not a real breach, okay? There was one real breach of one system that I have had to remediate. And it was one system, just one. It took three full-time engineers working three days, 16 hours a day to deal with one system, just one. Add up all of that, that's a $10,000 problem right there just to pay the payroll for that problem. You know, that's a 10 grand problem. Even if nothing else was actually affected, what was most definitely affected was you took those three people, took them out of the bucket of being able to do something productive for those days. It was one stinking system. So imagine a situation where it's like, oh, you know, multiple servers have gotten their poo-poo handed to them on a stick. So I, I think... I've got a different perspective on these things because I talk to the forensic incident response companies. I talk to breach attorneys. You know, I talk to these people who experience this stuff on a fairly, you know, regular basis. And you hear about how much time has gone into it. And I, I think there's another piece here that most business owners don't think about. They always seem to think they can get help when they need it. Oh, that's a really good one. Yes. So yes. if we just, and I don't mean to take a tangent off of, you know, incident response, but we are talking about dark web <laughs> monitoring and breaching, right? You know, we're talking about risk management and where really is the risk coming from. So if you're not taking this proactive preventative approach and you're, you know, and you're not really doing all the security stack properly, then you could have an incident and if it gets escalated to the point where the insurance company has to get involved, they're going to hold your stuff for a while. Now, is that two days? Is it a week? I don't know. Did the FBI have to get involved? You know, what has to happen from the forensic incident response company? You basically don't even have the ability to start your recovery until they've said you can touch your systems again. Because if you start touching your systems, and most of the MSPs know this now, they won't touch your systems until it's been cleared by the breach attorney, it's been cleared by the insurance company, and it's been cleared by their own lawyer. Like, I ain't gonna touch that stuff because I don't wanna deal with the FBI coming along and saying I did criminal tampering with evidence. No, not touching it, okay? <clears throat> so the MSPs, no, don't touch it. So here you got a business who's freaking out and pooping bricks, and it's seven days and they can't even start the process of recovery. Now you can finally start the process of recovery. What are we talking, another week, two weeks, maybe three weeks? And this is why, what, 50% of the businesses that get breached, yes. they go out of business because yeah, they're just one of the flipping stats dead. Share. Yeah. Another thing that we tell people, that's in our presentation, we actually have that stat because we want people to understand the severity like you're describing. It's so hard to recover. And then other one that I think is important is it's not like somebody, you know, 
just went searching for you specifically. I think that's important as well. I like to tell people, I think the attacks are more like somebody jiggling all the doors in the neighborhood to see if they can find one they can get in. It's not like they spent, you know, five weeks evaluating the neighborhood and deciding who's the best target. So if you think of someone jiggling all the doors in your neighborhood, do you leave your door unlocked? I mean, if someone told you there's been crime in your neighborhood, most of us, you know, somewhere you've lived in your life in a neighborhood where the police say, hey, guess what? There, we've had recent, you know, car theft, whatever in the neighborhood. Want you to know, please lock your doors. <laughs> there you go. Now you have I to just, tell them what you just showed me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just showed Kathy a picture of my warning. This property is protected by a highly trained attack rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think if you can keep in mind that it's not that they're targeting you, they're just trying to find any open door. And if they yeah, find I, that open door, like Felicia said, you're looking at a lot of downtime and cost. Yeah, and that's true for most organizations. Absolutely. I, I think there uh, there is some targeting that goes on, though. And, you know, one of the things that that I have taken very strong personal responsibility over is that I realize I probably have 10,000 passwords. OK, because I have credentials to so many different environments. Does that make me a whale? Yes, I think maybe it does. Yes. OK, fair enough. So I will say for the in the small uh, mid market that we work in, um, I think that in some industries they're targeted for sure. Um, but there are certainly some of our customers that probably don't hit whale lists. But in those cases, then, yeah, just please don't think of yourself as not being at risk because they're going to be jiggling all the doors to see where they can get in. But yeah, yeah 100% I mean, agree. Yeah. Targets um, do exist. So uh, I have a, a client who had, let's say, 500,000 records of PII. And, and I said to them, Let's just assume $1 per record cost, which you know is well below what the actual real cost of the record is, right? It's probably more in the realm of somewhere 50 to $270, depending upon the type of record that it is. Let's just say 200 or $1 each. That's still a half a million. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so, so you could pay a half a million in a penalty, basically. Or um, you could... But I don't know, 20 grand in the risk mitigation. You know? <laughs> so I think that that speaks to something very important, which uh, in my experience, it's really not all about budgets. It's about perception of the appropriate allocation of the budget yes. and having to wake up and say, wait a minute, you know what? Cybersecurity defense is a critical part of our budget. It just plain has to be. It's, it's just, you know what? You're going to have an electric bill. And you're going to have a cybersecurity bill. And if you don't have those, you're probably not running your organization. Um, eventually, they're going to not have any customers either. I keep seeing a higher incidence of third-party information security risk management going on. And uh, that's just going to be SOP. I've seen it come out of banks. You know, you go to the bank, you want to get a loan. They're like, well, you know, <laughs> do this, you know, cybersecurity assessment. Um and of course, the cybersecurity insurance companies are doing that. And, and that's like CMMC, right? Trickling down to all the subcontractors. Oh, yeah. I mean, but even just, I mean, the big wake up call is how many tax preparers do we have in the United States? Oh, my gosh. Right? Yeah. I'd hate to say some of the prospects we've spoken to in the environments they have. Um, 
yeah. It'd be, I think I would encourage everyone to ask your tax preparer to prove to you that your information will be secure because we've definitely met tax preparers who do not appreciate the cybersecurity risk out there. Um, I think that's a bit of an understatement. <laughs> I was just sitting here thinking, did I say that too strong? <laughs> you're, no, no. You, I think I think you're no. soft selling that one a bit. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll enhance that. So, but there the, are, I'm sure there are many that do a great job of it. I just want to put well, it out there. Well, the right. challenge comes down to, you know, here's what the challenge comes down to is the majority of the smaller tax preparers are trying to satisfy the needs of a very budget conscious market. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they're trying to do things, you know, very cost effectively. And um, at the end of the day, that doesn't add, that does not allow them to actually have an IT security budget. And this isn't just a matter of let's have multi-factor authentication or let's have, you know, do we have encryption on our data and do we have good endpoint protection and are we patching things? No, no, the ship has sailed on that. Now, do you have policies for the entire CIS control suite, right? Do you have a system security plan? Do you have an incident response plan? Is it tested? Do you have a breach attorney? Uh, you know, do, do you have your data classified? Are you absolutely sure your data is encrypted at rest and in transit? You know, the, the FTC and the IRS both now have very stringent requirements you, as a single tax preparer, you now have to have cybersecurity awareness training, phishing testing, phishing training. And, he, and, and okay, it's going to get better. It's getting better. You got to have an attestation system. You cannot anymore have a situation where you just say, oh, check. Yes, 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 yes. I got that. No, no. You have to have an attestation system. You have got to be able to prove a legally defensible posture saying over time, every single week, every single month, whatever that periodicity is, automatically the systems are generating reports into the attestation system and you have at least a one-year retention on that. Because when poo-poo hits the fan, that's going to be the question that's asked is, well, you said on your application that you have these things. Prove it. And if you don't have the attestation reports that no human tampered with in order to prove to pre- create those reports and to present them to the um, the compliance portal. If it wasn't no human intervention involved, then it's not considered non-tamperable, right? So we have to have a non-tamperable attestation system, even for a single user environment tax preparer. So here's the key kicker piece out of that. There isn't a single other MSP in the United States that I'm personally aware of, and I know a lot of them, that actually has that thing at a financial level that they could scale that down to even a five-user business. And so if you have a tax preparer that's a five-user business, and they need to cost-effectively get the whole policy set, they need to have CISO services, they need to have attestation, they need to have all the technical controls, they need to have, you know, the whole kit and caboodle, right? Otherwise, they're not meeting the IRS and FTC regulations. Well, see, all that stuff costs money, right? 
<clears throat> and so that's the problem. And they don't understand that they need that. They're not asking for the right stuff. That's a primary foundational problem here. And that the insurance awareness training. Well, and even the insurance brokers don't, the insurance brokers don't really know this well either. Um, they don't tell their customers that what's going to happen when poo-poo hits the fan, that you have to produce these reports. Okay. Yes. There's all these business owners that are out there saying, hey, we do business with our IT service provider. They've got it covered. That doesn't meet the compliance requirements. I mean, I'm sure you've looked at CIS. And one of the things, and there's a lot of overlap with NIST CSF as well. So it's, do you have a policy? And then all the flavors underneath that. Do you have the technical controls? And then are they automated? And then, oh, oh, oh the last one is, is it reported to the business? Okay. Is it reported to the business? How many business owners out there want to know that they're getting what they are being charged for? What, 2% maybe? Most of them just want to hire an IT service provider, delegate, and abdicate. And that's a model yes. that's dead. It has to be a partnership. They've got to start getting engaged. Because the, the there's so much this where I've seen where the insurance company or the broker is, they're like, oh, I'll talk to my broker about that. No, no, you need to talk to your IT service provider about that stuff. This kind of, I think, comes back to that it's not just a quantitative um, purchase. It's not transactional. It just isn't. And, it's not um, a commodity. It's not a commodity. I understand that some parts of the IT world, especially on the consumer side, are commoditized. Cell phones, right? Commoditized, totally get it. And many people, that is basically the PC they use in their personal life. Um, but unfortunately, taking that perspective and moving that to the perspective of your IT services, that that's a problem. It's just kind of like the use that I was talking with today, you know, not understanding the scenario can result in you know, a bad situation for you. So you can't understand it if you're doing it as a transactional purchase. You have to be engaged and aware and want to understand not the how of everything, but understand it well enough. To me, it's kind of like management in general, right? You're not in your role because you're the best at every job of the employees that are work reporting to you but you're in your role because you understand it well enough. You make sure you get reports from those individuals and you understand those reports and you help guide the organization in the right direction. I think IT similar. Yeah, I mean, th this is not a commoditized business. I mean, I, I think you, you would probably say something similar here in terms of, I know we treat each one of our clients uniquely. 100%. You know, we tailor what we do to meet their specific needs, not just for their industry, but for their particular business and how they do business and their unique needs. We, yeah, we start with actually 10 points that we evaluate around just to kind of get it in the right area. And then after those 10 points, not only industry and size, but others, then, you know, we're customizing from there. Yeah, because they're all different. So it's, it's got standards. But it's definitely, there's an element of it that's absolutely bespoke. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's the antithesis <laughs> of commodity. <laughs> yeah, good point, right? Um, 
So uh, I wanted to uh, tag off of something you said there where I was thinking that, you, you know, one of the the things that I learned, well, I, I'm not going to say I learned, but was reinforced in my mind of the importance of it is that the IT service provider really should be proactively uh, through newsletters, through education, some sort of you know informational methodology, maybe in their service catalog, really conveying to clients, okay, we're not actually charging you for dark web monitoring, but you know, in effect, you really are getting it through this tool and this tool and this tool. And by the way, this is exactly why we need you, the executive management team, to allow us to have time to train your people to be aware of these features of the tools that you've already paid for so that your people, so that that, that security awareness is pushed down exactly right to the individual user level where they have no friction to resolve the problem on their own. They don't need to put in a support ticket. They, they know, ah, okay, this isn't a problem that is going to disrupt my workflow. This is just an issue I need to fix right now. If the issue is my password manager has informed me that, oh, oh that password is breached, I know what to do. I receive training. I go out there to that website, I go change the password immediately. No problem, no friction, no drama. You and know, no work interruption. 100%. I, I think training is one of those, another area within the IT arena that tends to be undervalued. And it's funny because there are parts of organizations where tra training is just an absolute known. OSHA, training, <laughs> right? Manufacturing, how do I use this equipment? Training. Like there are areas where people are like, absolutely, training. You know, this is what we have to do. Filing reports to an agency or a funder. Training. But in the IT world, I think sometimes, again, I, I keep going back to sort of this consumer thing. Oh, I use Word at home, so I know everything I need to do with Word in the office. No. And, and so I think training ends up sort of being minimized in the IT world when really the training is how you squeeze the juice out of the orange. I mean, that's how you get what's most oh, I love that about it. Um, and not only that, but without it, you may actually not get <laughs> what you think you're purchasing to your point. So that's wonderful that we have these dark web monitoring tools that empower your team to identify a risk and take care of it, but they don't know that or they don't remember because they heard about it during a flyer once 12 months ago. And there's a lot of other stuff that's passed their desk since then. So, you know, the ongoing training, like you talked about, cybersecurity awareness training, ongoing, keeping everything top of mind and making sure that they're aware of of their role in, and how it fits into the bigger picture. So a uh, couple things feeding off of that. First, I, I love that your- orange uh, comment was only because I'm in Florida. No, just joking. <laughs> I, I love that. That was great. Uh, so some of the objections that I've heard from executive management teams about how they don't want to spend any time on training is they're like, well, that costs payroll. Yes. And I'm like, nothing costs you more payroll time than inefficiency. Well, and everything costs payroll that involves labor. So right. of course it costs payroll. Right. Everything costs payroll. But again, we're allocating resources to mitigate risk. If you're acknowledging the risk, then you're allocating resources. Some of them may straight up be straight up financial out the door to consulting organizations that have expertise. Some of it may be labor cost. 
you know, and isn't it cheaper operating expense, you know, isn't it cheaper to have all of your staff trained? So now you have all of these people Share that are part of the solution, right? They're all of these people are part of the organization's defense mechanism. This is a, a, exactly the argument for why all of the staff should be at a minimum aware of the company policies. They don't have to have read all of them. You'd, you'd like them to, <laughs> right? You'd like them to. But at a minimum, we require that they are aware that these policies exist and they know how to go get them, right? They know how to go look up in the policies. And then the final piece of that is that they have actually said, I will conduct myself in accordance with the organizational policies. And then you have to, every year, reinforce that with people and say, hey, we still expect you to conduct yourself in accordance with this. So, you know, if you don't really remember what's in the policy, go look it up, you know. And so this whole payroll time thing. And make it, sorry, and make it real by allocating time for that to happen. Sure. I mean, look, I, I don't see any difference between that and uh, clean your, you know, flea bitten desk. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, how much better off are we if the the building has clean air, you know, that that we allocate somebody from a facilities perspective to go change the air filter. Right. Um, like, why not buy some cleaning supplies and tell people clean your stinking keyboard and your mouse and your phone and stop, you know, living in a vat of germs. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have of, higher productivity if people are not sick. At the end of the day, it's a real thing that really exists in the real world. And you're choosing to either reduce the risk or not, right? I mean, that that is, and that labor from the individual is such a cost-effective way to reduce your risk. And you're building an asset, right? We, I don't think any manager would say, oh, educate an employee with more education about my organization is not, I should say it differently. Every manager would consider an employee who's more educated in the organization is a more powerful and a more important asset. Right. I mean, yeah. we all know the more our team can understand our company better, our customers better, the products better, our mission better. Right. We all know that that's critical for a well-functioning organization. And IT is just part of that. And cybersecurity defense is just part of that. And very specifically speaking to the dark web, understanding their role from the prevention, you know, phishing and all that other stuff they need to have awareness and training around. And I love the idea of them self-servicing the monitoring of their passwords in real time. I mean, that to me is huge. Well, I mean, it, it, talking about real risk reduction and real risk mitigation, I don't care about dark web. I care that people are trained properly and are diligently correctly utilizing their company provided password manager. I mean, <laughs> that that's... That's infinitely valuable because, you know, number one, we have an actual business continuity inventory for what did that person use to do their job? I mean, wow, right? That's huge. And there was a last year during the whole cybersecurity insurance renewal time period, I did a podcast on uh, the, the, the things that you can do to basically make yourself um, uninsured, you know, to have a, a claim oh. denial. Okay. And one of those things is if you say I have MFA, but you never actually had an account inventory. 
Okay. So don't tell me you got MFA if you don't even know where the hell your accounts are. Like that's just <laughs> horse hockey. Okay. So how do we actually get an inventory of the accounts? We have to have a company sponsored password manager. And we have to train people and we have to spot check them and make sure that they're using their company provided password manager completely. And I've been very successful at this by selling it to the end users as this is not just more secure, it's more convenient for you. And look at how fast it can make you. Reduce so, friction, like you were saying, right? Yeah. 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 A lot of my training is about look at how cool this thing is. I'm going to tell you my tips and tricks for how to use this thing to where you can be more efficient and reduce your friction and just get rid of some pain that you have in your job. Yeah. Don't, don't talk to me about you have 150 passwords. I got 10,000. Okay. <laughs> like, you know, I have at least three password managers. Okay. <laughs> you know, and then I have, you know, UB keys and, and multiple authenticators and I have stuff in safes and I have stuff offline and online and all kinds of BCDR like, do not talk to me about your password friction pain. <laughs> you know, you're not getting any sympathy from me about that. You know, it's just called suck it up cupcake and get some security. <laughs> so, um, but you know, that's, you know, it goes back to this topic of the, the real risk, you know, management prioritization. And so many organizations think that they can transfer risk. They think they're transferring that risk to the it service provider. And I don't think that that is, uh, in effect, that doesn't bear out over time. And, yes, I would, you know, the I, IT service providers can, and I think, you know, that's some of our audience. Some of our audiences are, are business decision makers. Uh, some of it are just, you know, tech savvy people that like to be in the know. And um, that risk transfer really just doesn't exist anymore because your MSPs are savvier now. And they're saying, no, no, this is what we're doing to prove that we're actually delivering the service to you that we said we were going to provide you. And we're documenting the ways in which you did not fulfill your customer responsibilities so that said component or said security risk mitigation could be you know, successful in your organization. You know, so the, the business owners that have hired an IT service provider for the purposes of delegate, abdicate, and then transfer risk that's a dead strategy. You know, it's, it was interesting you say that as a customer, not too long ago, we were saying, you know, you really need to up your game in security. It's just the world's changed. You need to up, up your game. And we told them some things that needed to get done. They're like, well, we're going to do two out of five of those, basically. Okay, we don't, we don't like that idea. We don't like you choosing to do two out of five. We think that's not a good idea, but we'll regroup in a month. Okay. So we regroup. Um, in the interim, something came up where they needed to do some stuff with their insurance. And um, so they contacted us and the owner said to me, well, you're our IT provider, so I count on you to keep everything secure. And I said, well, let's hold up there just one minute. <laughs> First of all, on this document that we all agreed to, um, you declined a whole bunch of security. So you're not even at the level we want you at. So it, 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 
No, unfortunately, that's not the case. You need to get to the appropriate level for us to feel comfortable. And then to your point, Felicia, even at that level, there's stuff you have to do. And it's hard because, yes, we want to reduce friction. We want to reduce pain. Of course, we do everything we can, but that doesn't eliminate effort. There is some effort on the part of the customer. There just is. You know, getting through the training, um, man, uh, understanding the reporting, not allowing the execs to bypass MFA, <laughs> you know, <laughs> all these things that are super important. It's special and to have MFA. I, I have heard MSPs uh, who will say, you know, if someone doesn't follow all our security guidelines, we won't have them as a customer. And I get it. I understand why an MSP would feel that way. I'm, I think I'm it depends. Yeah, I'm kind of more like, I, I want to make sure we're on the same page that you're not doing everything I want you to do. I'm glad you're doing more than you did before. I'm going to fight really hard to get you where you need to be as long as you see yourself on a road and we're kind of walking that road together. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there are some real hard topics, though. And, you know, in that realm, I would say MFA. Okay. And... Uh, things like cybersecurity awareness, training, phishing, testing, phishing, training, right? Um, and, you know, data encryption. Okay. Because the, the breaches that are reportable, 90% of them could be main, made unreportable simply by using encryption appropriately. So from a risk management perspective, the insurance company looks at that and says, no, you got to have that, right? That is, <laughs> that is not optional. Uh, when they're looking at the risk mitigation efficacy of MFA, there's like, no, you got to have that, you know? So, yeah. so these, these pieces that will turn uh, a company into being uninsurable, those are hard, dead, stop, you got to have it. And the reality is, Okay, this is okay. Getting a little controversial here, but this is reality. An MSP will invalidate their own cybersecurity insurance policy and their ENO policy if they allow a customer to be a customer that doesn't meet certain criteria. So, because of that, the MSP does have to take a hard line on certain things. Because they become uninsurable themselves and then they're not being decent to their stakeholders. You know, their employees, the families of the employees, the other customers who are conducting themselves in accordance with, you know, standards and best practices. Those are, you know, you have stakeholders, I have stakeholders, and I know we take our job very seriously, right? You know, yes, our goal definitely. is to continue to stay in business and to be very good at what we're doing and to have the capacity to meet the needs of our clientele. And that's a lot of work, right? That's a lot of protecting the, the interests of our stakeholders. And so if there are clientele who do not meet those minimum requirements that we are legally obligated to have in our you know, spectrum of what we protect, uh, then we can't, right? I mean, I can't have a situation where I'm, I'm allowing a particular client to invalidate our E&O policy and our cyber insurance policy can't have that because then I'm going to go out of business. Right. So I think, you know, it's important that we talk about that kind of stuff because we're not just sitting around being jerks. <laughs> you know, I mean, somebody's like, Oh, you don't really need that. not like, trying to make your life difficult, trying to make yeah, it better. 
yeah, you're just <laughs> trying to sell us some stuff. No, I'm not just trying to sell you some stuff. You know, in fact, I, in, in the contrast, I spent 200 hours doing R&D dev testing to find a cost-effective yet efficacious solution that I could offer to you that was so inexpensive, you would be foolish to not do it, right? You know, look at most of the cybersecurity awareness training and the phishing testing and phishing training out there. It's very affordable. So at that point, it's not legally defensible to say, oh, we're not going to do that. You know, at, that's, that's not a legally defensible argument. Um, I, I wanted to pivot to uh, something that that is it it reminded something that you said reminded me of the shared responsibility model. So I talked about this a little bit before in CIS. You know, you have policies, you have your company organizational policies. So that's the customer, right? That's the customer responsibility right there. That's pillar number one. And we can help them write policies. At the end of the day, though, they have to finalize the policy. The customer must finalize the policy and they must approve it. They must incorporate it in their HR handbook and they must enforce it in the organization, right? Okay, so pillar number one, policies. That is customer <laughs> responsibility number one. All right. Now, in, in this, we're making a shared responsibility sandwich here. The customer's on the outside and we're on the inside. All right, the, the next one here is we have, do you have technical controls implemented? Great. The, sec, the third pillar here is, do you have your technical controls automated and enforced? Not just implemented, but automated and enforced, okay? Now, the fourth pillar, which is the last pillar here, is it's reported to the business. This is about the attestation component. It's about checks and balances. It's about people understanding what's going on. Like, you know, this aspect of, did the IT service provider convey adequately to the client that, hey, when you get this password manager from us, you know, when you use our customer engagement platform, when you use our compliance platform, uh, when you use our cybersecurity awareness training platform, when you use these things, you know, we are also providing you dark web monitoring data. And we've provided these documents. They're in your training site. They're in our knowledge base. We make these things available to your staff. Um, we need you to include these things in the new user onboarding. It's great that you allowed us to sit around and train your staff during the implementation of this. But now what are you, the business, doing to help us ensure that every new employee that you bring onto the organization is included in this new training, right? How can we automate that in, in terms of like a learning management system? Can we create a role, for example, that says, you know, all staff, and then there's the finance staff, and there's the legal staff. You know, can we create a role that is a tailored, a, a tailored set of training for any new person in the organization to ensure that they're receiving not only the training for all employees, but also the training that's applicable to their specific role. And so that, that's part of that enforcement and reporting to the business piece. But the other component of, of enforcement and reporting to the business is is anyone on the, the customer business side looking at the report? 
sports. So the MSP can do all their super wonderful things and get all that automated attestation, that non-tamperable, beautiful attestation going into a compliance portal. You can do all that wonderful magic. But if, again, the business just says it's commodity service, we're delegating, we're abdicating, security is IT's problem, and we've delegated that to you, we don't care, we don't want to be involved anymore. They are abdicating on pillar number four, their client responsibility to validate that what is what they think is happening is happening, right? And I love the fact that your client reached out to you about this particular topic. You know, I think that was the exact correct reaction. Go to you you know, the trusted advisor and say, hey, I'm confused about this thing. I thought it worked like this. And then it gave you the opportunity to say, no, that's not how it works. And now it's an educational moment. That is exactly what happens when the clients are paying attention to pillar four, where they see a report, they don't understand the report. What the hell is this for me? <laughs> what, is, <laughs> what is this report? And, and, you know, like, okay, this is what this report does. This is how you analyze it. This is why it's important. This is why you should care, right? And we really care about you, which is why you get this report. And, and there's a difference between an approach that is chuck a bunch of data at the client via email. I don't do that. So to be clear, I want to clarify here because there are some IT service providers that have taken that approach in the past. And the reaction that it tends to elicit from the customer is, I'm overwhelmed. I don't want all that crap in my email. Okay, And I totally agree, which is why we don't do that approach. We have a compliance portal, I think. And if you look at the CMMC standards, it basically echoes this. It says someone on the business side outside of IT needs to be looking at the stinking reports. They need to have a cadence. They need to have a schedule. And they need to get in there and they need to look at the reports. They need to care. They need to care. And you know what? It's your business. You should care. <laughs> well, it not only, yes, and I, I think you care, which means you appreciate the value and importance. You appreciate the uniqueness, right? Because this is your report about your organization. It's not everybody's report that's just generic, but this is telling you about your organization. And yeah, I mean, do you do you look at your PL every month? Yes. I hope so. I hope so. And I hope you look at your balance sheet. <laughs> I've had my own business a long time and I didn't know the whole balance sheet thing. I was not a business major or any of that. <laughs> Learned all this stuff definitely the hard way. But uh I was several years in until I fully appreciated understanding my balance sheet. I think many business owners are several years in until they fully appreciate understanding the reports from IT. Yes. But they're just as important. I, it's so crucial where historically it was a matter of value understanding understanding that the business was actually getting what they were paying for. Mm -hmm. But now it's even more beyond that. It's right. now, it was procurement, but now it's strategic, right? Well, it, it's even, it's even bigger than that. It's um, keep your backside out of jail. Because if, if you can't 
if you don't have the reports and you're not sure of what's in the reports and you're not sure that the reports are proving that you have the security protections in place that you said on your cybersecurity insurance application. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Then, okay, let me run with me on the cascade on this. Not only do you have a denied claim, but now all of the customer contracts that you had that were contingent upon you having a viable, valid cybersecurity insurance policy, you've just breached those contracts. And you did it through malfeasance because you lied on the damn application. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I know. It's always scary talking to me, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just a reality sandwich here. <laughs> I think that in, in organizations that have corporate and enterprise customers, 100% that is their reality every day, those types of contracts. If you are, and I 100% agree with that, if you are a, I will say, you know, the word small organization means so many different things to so many different people. But let's say you're in the neighborhood of one to 25 employees or one to 50, and you are servicing other organizations of one to 25, or even consumers, or one to 25 or one to 50, you may not have those contracts. So you may not have the contracts that say, hey, I'm guaranteeing that I have the appropriate insurance. So, okay, but I, that doesn't mean that this is not relevant for what you're doing because you still have that responsibility, like Felicia was saying earlier. I just want to I just want to make sure that if you're like, oh, you know what? Thank goodness. Whew, that's not me because I don't have contracts like that. Right. I'm selling to consumers or I'm selling to other small businesses on my main street. So that's like not an issue. But at the end of the day those other risk factors we talked about, they're far more difficult for the small organizations to be resilient towards, to not be able to use any of your systems for a week, to have to come up with 10K or 20K to address something, you know, to have to pay the ransom. It's much more difficult for smaller organizations to be able to respond and weather. And that's that 50% failure go out of business, not fail to respond to the breach or that, that's not the failure we're talking about. We're talking about going out of business. 50% of those small organizations go out of business within six months. So I, I think that the, the repercussion can be different depending on the size of the org, but the intensity of the repercussion is it's still there. It's just a little bit different. What would you say to a business decision maker that was hesitant to make the time in their schedule to at a minimum every quarter, if not once a month, review the reports that are in their compliance portal to understand okay, this is what this proves is in good working order in our environment. So if you're in a very large organization, you probably have an individual that it is part of their job title to get that done, like a very explicit part of their job title, some type of, you know, C-level executive who's responsible for ensuring that that is happening. Okay. Let's say you're a small organization. You don't have that person. It's not in anyone's job title. It has to happen. But there's not been something allocated really specifically within payroll to make that happen. I think that that's not an uncommon scenario in small mid-market for many critical activities. And the way that organizations, in my experience, typically handle that 
is you have, okay, let's just talk small business. You have some sort of entrepreneur person and somewhere in that org is your more detail person, I guess is the way I would put it. Sometimes it's an office manager and it's administrative assistant. It's it's somebody who's making sure the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, and the rhythmic part of the business is happening. So my recommendation for all things like that, did you make sure you review the PL? <laughs> did the taxes get paid? You know, there are things that just have to happen. Did payroll run on time? These things have to happen in small mid-market, small businesses in particular. I will say mid-market, you probably have a job allocated for most of that. But when you don't have a job allocated, find that keeper of process in your org who thrives, you know, who doesn't feel comfortable because they left their desk and something that had to happen that day didn't happen, you know, that's on the table, on the calendar. Work with that person to, that it's their job responsibility to make sure that this checklist of critical recurring activities happen. To get the initial momentum, I think like any habit, right? Three weeks, any habit, it's helpful to have a trainer or a partner to help you. So um, whether you review reports with your, you know, many of the small organizations are probably some sort of CEO group. So maybe in your CEO group that you meet with once a month, maybe you all include 15 minutes, everyone reviews their reports. You know, that could be great. Um, work with your MSP or your IT provider. You know what? Um, there, in my experience, we're often asking to get meeting time with our customers. We want to meet with you. We want to be able to share information with you that we think is important. Say, okay, I'll give you that time, but let's go through my reports. Good. <laughs> let's do that together until you feel more comfortable and fluent in the report. Maybe then you can make the frequency less often. So uh, I want to just enhance, I, that was all fantastic. I want to enhance one piece. Um, I have to put my BCDR hat on, you know, my business continuity hat and everything that gets turned into a process that is a schedule, right? You, you know, you articulated it so well. You have to make sure sales tax is remitted. You have to make sure payroll is paid. You know, you have to make sure your vendors are paid. You know, you have to make sure. And, and everybody has some sort of an accounting schedule calendar. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to be able to have process schedule calendar for all the things that need to be done. And I like to associate that with a role. So maybe that's in the billing department, maybe that's in um, the CFO office, okay? But define a, a role. I don't like putting it with just one person. And, and I, there's a few reasons for that. One is, of course, business continuity. The other is I find that when you have more than one person who is uh, on a team-based approach are responsible for it then, and then they, ha they have forced rotation. Okay, I love job sharing. So this month I'm gonna do it, that. next month you're gonna do it. Now, if each month as we do it, we're both improving our process documentation, you're gonna see things I didn't see and vice versa. And organizationally, it all gets improved and the quality of the whole thing and certainly the accountability of it also gets raised up. When somebody is the only person who has to do a process, there is no forced mechanism of, okay, I've got a, pro a documented process. Now I need you to do that process this month. You're going to follow the process document and verify that that document is is good. And if not, you're going to update it and you're going to fix it and make it better. Right. So if we have a, an organic forced mechanism to always create 
business process documentation of the highest quality that works for a team of individuals, that's that's when you really that's when you really get it done. The stuff I've seen be the most adversely impactful to an organization is, you know, some dude started 25 years ago, <laughs> you know, and he was just always the dude that did all the things. And the organization never had a forced approach because this is something that's got to come top down. The executive management team has to promote this as something that this is how we're going to do it. We're going to job share. We're going to do documentation. We're going to rotate. You know, we're going to specify processes in such a way that we're very structured so that if you know, Kathy goes on vacation for a month. Felicia knows what to do. I was just about to say, um, in order to make this, I 100% agree, <laughs> by the way, with what you're describing. I love the idea of multiple people in a row being able to facilitate and accelerate continuous improvement. I think that's awesome. And um, one of the um, things that we talk with people about is, especially, I keep going back to the smaller organizations, I guess, but in small organizations, uh, first of all, a lot of people are just, doing a lot of roles anyway. And so there can be the thought, how could I possibly have two people for one role? I've got one person for 50 jobs. You know, <laughs> that could be the feeling. But the way I think a, an incremental step way to think about it is as a backup, just like you described. Somebody is inadvertently hit by a bus. We always talk about that. You know, what are you going to do? You don't want to shut down. It's risk mitigation again, right? You have only one person who knows how to run payroll and heaven forbid they win the lottery and they disappear. So what are you going to do? Just not run payroll that week? Is that, is that what's going to happen? No. Right. We can, we cannot be living in this world. <laughs> it's not going to last very long. So this concept of a backup, I think is a nice incremental step towards true team-based role, you know, role sharing. But I love your idea, you know, where you can just alternate those roles. I mean, yeah, the, yeah. You know, in uh, in practice, the um, the downsides to the concept of backup that I've seen is that it it tends to not force people to engage in Kaizen. It, it allows people to say, you know, hey, Felicia wrote this procedure. It's good. Nobody needs to check it. Uh, and then I go on vacation for a month and you're looking at something you've never seen before. And you're like, what the holy hell is she talking about? <laughs> But okay. admittedly, that happens one time. <laughs> it's yes, painful, but, though. But it could yeah. be the time when that employee separates from the organization. True. And that yeah. is not the time that you want to find out about it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's accurate. It's hard. It's hard on a small organization. You know, if somebody's job, let's say, has four roles in it, and the other person's job has four roles in it, and we want them to both share those roles. And so now they're each going to have eight roles. You'll reach a breaking point on how much they can actually absorb and do. I think there's just there's just limits on what humans can do. But to your point, I think that there are critical activities that have to happen. So I think payroll is a great example. Sales tax is a great example. The security compliance reports, great examples. For me, those rise above the noise and say, okay, let's role share these guys. We're just not going to be able to roll share everything. It's just not realistic. Um, but we could target these specific critical items and roll share those. So one of the things that, that I've done for my organization is I do delegate. 
but I set these standard requirements, like you're going to do BPMN, which is business process modeling notation. Um, have you ever seen a BPMN chart? I think in, in Visio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not just a flow chart, right? But like BPMN notation, right? So business process modeling notation, but it is like a Visio chart where it's, you know, you're doing these things and here's this process flow, here's your decision. And if it goes this way, you're going to do that, right? So that's, that's definitely a simple way of thinking about it. So now this is kind of the, the overarching concepts that we're going to conduct ourselves with for this particular process. Now you uh, enhance that with like a Word document that's okay, when you're doing this, this is the detail. And when you're doing this piece of the process, this is the detail, right? So it's a lot more, that's your supporting actual how-to structural step one, two, three, four. And so even though I'll have somebody like make all of that, I, I myself go through all of that and I myself force myself to learn how to do their job, even if they started with it. And that helps me be a better manager of that person. It helps me to uh, advise them on maybe, maybe here's ways you could make your documentation more effective in terms of conveying what you intended, right? So, so basically what I'm saying here is that even if we're really structured and we do all the documentation and you've got really people, really smart people inventing the processes and they're very diligent and thorough in their documentation, there's just absolutely no substitute for having somebody validate that. And that, yes, I could do that job too. And my standard, here's the standard that I tell my whole team. I say, okay, my standard is, I have credentials, I've never done this process before, and I have no idea what I'm doing. Now nice. your documentation better be that good. <laughs> we do something similar for customer documentation is uh, we had a very non-technical team member. So when we created documentation for customers, we'd be like, okay, here's the documentation. Just like you said, here you can log in, go make sure you can do what we're telling them that they should be able to do. Right. Yeah. And, and so as part of that, it forces you to write concepts and prerequisites to convey foundational concepts. Instead, I, I find very much so uh, when you're working with really higher end people, they, they oftentimes are like, oh, I just assume, you know, well, we're just going to assume somebody knows how to do this. And it's like, no, 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 <laughs> no, you can't make that assumption. That's not how we have business continuity documentation. That's not how you cross train your coworkers, right? That's not how you create a real process. If you're leaving out a chunk and that chunk, every single time somebody has to do it, it has to be inserted and enhanced with their little nuanced, unique knowledge, right? That, I'm sorry, that's not a process. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges, and I, I believe cybersecurity, this is accurate as well, is how quickly things change. And uh, people can feel like they create documentation and it's so rapidly, um, I don't know if I should say is out of date, but there, there's a sense of, is the documentation staying current with the changing world we're in? I don't think the world really changes as much as it can feel like it is changing sometimes when it comes to the documentation. But I think that's a real and valid concern people have when they're thinking about, hold on a minute, you're telling me to document all of this stuff, but you know, 
I'll just take QuickBooks as an example. Well, pretty much the 365 suite, any SaaS application today, right? It's not that you're getting an update to that application once every six months or once a year anymore. You're getting an update to that application what can feel like randomly and constantly. <laughs> that menu item isn't there anymore. Or, you know, so if this document's showing me how to do something that, I don't know, execute sales tax or whatever, will it be relevant? I think that's some of the challenges people encounter is like at what point, if part of this process involves third-party tools, how much of the how-to of that third-party tool do I incorporate in the document and how do I actually keep it relevant and current if that third-party tool is is uh, updating a lot? It, it's a bit of a segue, but I think it is a challenge when it comes no, to- No, I don't think it's a segue. Process. I think it's spot on topic uh, because you know, you're bringing up an objection that somebody could present that is why we shouldn't do documentation or we shouldn't do it in adequate levels of detail. And the approach I've taken with my team is, look, if you just have the discipline that each time you're going to go do that process, you go get that document and you follow it, that is now your opportunity to fix it. <laughs> that fix is it. My, my favorite thing is uh, work through with the doc. That, that's something that, um, especially one of my team members where there's a lot of process documentation, um, we'll be talking about the process. I'm like, is the doc open? Is the doc open? <laughs> because it's just, it's that type of a process where if you think you have it in your head, what's supposed to happen next year, you're, you're probably missing something. Yeah. So it's just got to get that doc open. So, you know, I, uh, I had these, this interesting adventure journey in my life where you know, I was at one point in time, the person who would not only invent the whole process, but also the person that would always execute the process. And when you start training other people how to do the process, and they're not as smart as you, you have a <laughs> lot of pain. There's a hell of a lot of pain there, you know? And, and so what I realized was that, wow, it was way less pain for me to just write good documentation. And the other thing is, because I think we all learn through pain, is I would find where I would do a process from memory. And then, you know, two weeks later, some little sneaky setting that I missed came back like a little scary monster and popped up <clears> in my face. And I'm like, ow, I missed that, you know? <laughs> So if you simply have this discipline that every opportunity, you're going to go make that documentation better. And when you need to do the process, you're going to follow the process documentation and you're going to update it if it needs updating. You know, if you just discipline yourself, it's so easy to actually do good process documentation because you're doing it in these little tiny bite-sized chunks. Yeah. And I think it's real time, right? We're trying to get it to become a real time not like a one-off deliverable. It's it's part of the workflow, like you described. I think that's one of the things that um, some of our customers have asked about is video training, you know, which I totally get, you know, auditory learners, visual learners, kinetic learners, right? Um, I, even our kids, when they were in school, they were taught those terms. So like we have all these different types of learners and, um, it's an interesting idea, you know, maybe being able to try and leverage some of those other mechanisms. Oh, it's a podcast. So there's auditory for you <laughs> um, for the uh, for handling the knowledge transfer about the process itself. May, so, maybe not the detail because today's effort for video is not as simple as updating a Word doc. 
uh, but perhaps conceptual or, you know, some of the components. I think that might be a interesting idea to make it a bit easier, maybe context and and things like that. Well, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And, and I've been using that approach for years in my business and, and phenomenal results with it. You know, the context is super important. You have to have like a you have to have kind of a smell test that you that you uh, abide by. <laughs> and that smell test is um, is what I'm about to do some really ridiculously complicated, crazy, nuanced thing. OK, if it is, let's start a Zoom meeting with myself and hit the record button, you know, and then. <laughs> And then, you know, you make this video like you're doing the process and you have to narrate. And you're like, OK, I'm going over to this window now and I'm going to do this and this is why. Right. And then now look when this goes and this is fits together and, you know, and you're showing this. And I can tell you, I've saved so much time by doing that. Right. This my one time of inconvenience for that topic. Totally worth it, because now I can have a new employee that I just sit down with these videos. And they watch these videos and then I melt their brains out. They're like, <laughs> complicated stuff. Yes, there is no possible way I could have ever taught you how to do all of that like complicated stuff with simply a procedural document. You know, because you're like, okay, well, now I'm in this system and then I'm over here and then I'm over here, right? And these pieces and you grab the data from here and you stick it up here and you do, oh, look, this is weird. This is the broken. Now we got to fix that. You know, I mean, like it's, it's that kinetic process of, this was a real thing and I just recorded it, right? I didn't plan the training. I just said, no, I'm just going to hit the record button. I'm just going to do it and I'm going to narrate on my way. Now, I am pretty good at that, but <laughs> <laughs> but it has been so fruitful. And I really genuinely think that a lot of organizations could solve quite a lot of their business continuity problems if they would just get some free zoom licenses for their employees or and, teams just had to yeah, or that. teams right you know but <laughs> but say like um you, you know you just open this thing up hit the record button and then start narrating away and show us how you do this particular business function this is how i do sales yes. tax you know 100 <laughs> percent. so it it's like, I, if, clearly we need to be teaching some leadership classes here. <laughs> We've morphed the dark web monitoring we podcast have, we have into so much leadership training. <laughs> um, okay, so we're, uh, so wrap up the story for us here. Uh, where did you leave this with your client? Client was, was happy, okay. concerns yeah. allayed. Yeah, so fortunately, it was a very brief call, which was good. Um, because it meant we were able to lower the concern, truly lower, reasonably and, and objectively lower the concern. Um, but yeah, she, her voice changed. Um, you know, she was, she was nervous, like agitated and she was much calmer. And, uh, you know, when you're in a business like ours and probably a lot of people on the call, you know, you really you're trying to serve your customer, right? And you're so happy when your customer's happy. It's just such a good right. feeling, you know? So yeah, she said, oh, I knew that if I reached out to you, you guys would help me understand this better. And I love working with you guys. And she just went on and on about how much she likes our team and, you know, how glad she is she found us and everything. So it was just a very nice kind of love fest at the very end. Um, and, uh, and... <laughs> 
we are having that meeting where they are going to get back to their training. They had done it for a while and we found this happen with cybersecurity training. And, and we also have a project we call fishing net where they, um, you know, do the simulated fishing. And if they, if they bomb, <laughs> bomb it, it sends them to trainings. We have both of those. And what we found sometimes that will happen is they'll have it for a year or two years and nobody's failing. So they're like, why are we paying for this? <laughs> like, we don't want it anymore. Um, so yeah, so we're going to meet with them and get them back. Into so that. that's pillar four, right? It's it's the the does the business know what the status of the training is? Do they know that all their you know employees have current training? Have they seen the reports? Do they know that attestation is there? Um, and and you know. <laughs> One of the other things that's rather frustrating, I think, for all the IT service providers out there is, you know, we can't control the HR department of our customers, right? We need that partnership, right? We need them to understand their client responsibilities. Like Which comes back to your leadership point. If the person at the top is saying, I don't need MFA or training, it can be very difficult to get the, although, you know, you try and get the influencers to convince the people at the top, but yeah. Well, this is, again, more evidence that what we do is not commoditized. <laughs> That's right. Because I can tell you, I certainly adapt my change management techniques to meet the unique <laughs> needs of the personalities, the politics, and the proclivities, and the challenges that exist in each one of our client <laughs> environments, because they are all unique, you go, all Felicia. unique little individuals. <laughs> You know, and fundamentally, things are just not successful if, you know, you, you can't have an authoritarian, you know, some authoritarian just cram it from the top down sort of approach that doesn't work. You know, the, the HR manager needs to get involved. It needs, you know, these things need to go into uh, an employment offer contract. I've been, so when I write up like a statement of work or a little product sheet on a service that we're doing. I have a whole listing of these are the client responsibilities. And I'll say out there like, this is not going to be successful unless you work with on, the, on these things. Like you need to modify your HR handbook. You need to actually put in your offer letter to every single employee that you expect them to fully participate in cybersecurity training and adhere to policies, adhere to company policies, to be aware of the policies. And for that, I got some lovely clauses for that. It's beautiful. And <laughs> so what I try to do is basically give it on a platinum plated platter to the client and say, you know, please put this stuff in your HR handbook and, and work with them and say, okay, how do we incorporate this into the new employee onboarding process? Because this isn't just we're going to do this project today and we're done with it. How do we ensure that your at each employee that gets added is going to have the same level of training for the people that we trained six months ago? You know, I can't do that alone. I or have at to all, have... really, right? Well, I mean, right. We we can't we cannot um, enforce company policies at our customers. Yes. We can enforce the technical controls mm -hmm. and the automation and, and, you know, getting reporting too. but a lot of those are inputs to the processes and the policies at the org. 
they are Which not it, the policies or processes themselves, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, those, yeah. and this is why, like, you know, your HR person needs to have it as part of their roles and responsibility. You know, the HR client person needs to be knowing, oh, I have to once a month go to the compliance portal and I need to go pull this report and I need to see who are the employees that are not participating in the cybersecurity training. Because that's not my job. I have no power in that client organization. Right. I can't look at it. And why would the client want me to look at the report and then send an email to the HR manager and saying, would you please send a nag, a nag email to these employees? <laughs> you know, no. like, where's the value in that when I can just like give you the report? Right. Yeah, it's an interesting thing you said with the HR manager, because I will say I'm thinking of our customers um, that are, you know, not that smaller space, but larger, they have HR departments, maybe 100, 200 employee type thing. And um, oftentimes those phishing net reports are actually going to IT. So it's interesting how you said, you know, you send them to the HR I guess, is IT involved at all in it? Do you include IT and HR or you just have them configure it to only go to HR? It, it should, you know, so the, the question comes down to who can do something about it? So, you know, if the person who can do something about it is the compliance officer, it needs to go to the compliance officer. You know, you have to look at who has the authority in each organization to be able to reach out to line managers, to to everyone and yeah. say, you know, this is part of what you're expected to do as an employee of this organization. The facts here on this report suggest that you're not meeting up to those expectations. This is an expectation of you doing your job. You need to do it. See, IT is not the source for that communication. IT does not do performance appraisals or hold people accountable to adherence to policies. That is more often than not an HR function or a compliance officer function. One of those two roles. And most- Interesting, yeah, because I know one of our customers, they're in healthcare and it, we did send it to the compliance officer. It also went to the IT person. Well, not that we sent it, configured the tool that sends the reports, I should say it differently, yeah. um, to, um, to the compliance officer. They have a See, compliance officer. What is IT supposed to do with that report? Well, it's interesting. I'm just thinking about what she did do with it. I think she actually would reach out to the individuals for training, which is kind of, you know, when you mention it, it's it's interesting, probably would have been more effective. Well, I mean, the compliance officer also got it. So, you know. Well, look, I yeah, mean, this is exactly why every organization is unique and we have to tailor what's done for each unique client. And if it works at that organization, that's fine. But I would always really encourage people to stop evaluating who should do something based upon their thought about the individual who's in that job function right now. Yeah, understood. The decision should be made based upon whoever the heck has that role in the organization is the person who's going to do that. That to depersonalize it. Like when we do role-based access control, we do not give people a, we do not give like a manager a list of people and then a resource because they're 
always in their mind injecting their perception about that individual as to whether or not they should have access to that. So I decouple that whole thing and I say, look, if somebody has this role in the company, are these the things that they should have access to in order to do their job? That's 100% the way we work on our business app side all the time. Yeah, you say, you know, these are the functions and features. These are the roles do, 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 to find, you know, custom security um, for that scenario, for that organization of what that role can do. And then separately, like security groups, right? You're assigning users to those groups. So, yeah, that's it's interesting how I think with some of the tools and especially related to security, I think you're right, though. There's a sense of I'm going to have this person take care of this. And it might be because security does feel a little bit dangerous or risky, you know, and and maybe there's a. I don't, I don't know. know. That I think that's we want to trust my... this with Jimmy. I don't know. I just well, think well, it through. I my, wonder why that is. You know, my perception of it is that most oftentimes in the the small and, and in many cases even in the medium market, these decisions are driven from really a um, we haven't yet put our big boy pants mentality on yet. And what okay, I mean wait, by what's that mentality? I don't know what you mean. I mean, I understand the concept, but in this context, what are so you saying? It, it, it's a matter of operational maturity. Oh, so oh, oh, oh. like, yes. like how, how many, agree. right. So how agree. many like $300 million a year organizations do you know that are still conducting themselves as if they're 12 people in some dude's garage? <laughs> okay. They, they still conduct themselves at that level of operational maturity with regards to a lot of, I'm not going to say all, right, but a lot of their decision-making processes. They just have really not grabbed the big boy pants of operational maturity and put them on and said, okay, we're going to stop acting like we're 25 people in a room here. You know, we're, we're 350 people. We have to get some operational maturity. This isn't about Joe over here, okay? It's not <laughs> about, you know, Sally. That's not what this is about. We have to be making operationally mature decisions based upon roles and whoever is in that position is going to do these things right and it's uh you know you don't see so you don't see as much of that in large corporate enterprise of like 10,000 users and up but it's still there you know because fundamentally humans are still humans and if they didn't I think go, you see it at the department level for sure yeah right, right. department level start acting in that way as well we're going to assign this to Karen or yeah. Whomever. It's easy. It's very mm-hmm. easy. Uh, it's it's hard to be a manager and to not do that. Because the manager is typically very overwhelmed and they want to assign the task to whoever they know is going to go get the job done. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. So that that that's how everything got assigned. That's to you, about Kathy. the person, not the role. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. We just keep giving everything to Kathy to do because she knows what to do. <laughs> That's that's not an operationally mature decision making process. <laughs> okay. So um do you have any like final uh wrap up thoughts for us here? I know one of my big takeaways is uh I'm gonna go revisit my stuff and make sure that I'm really clearly calling out that hey, when you actually have these technologies from us, you're getting this stuff too. 
we covered so much ground today. <laughs> it's hard for me right now to think of the one takeaway. Um, I would say that it's always affirming to me to be able to talk through the topics with people who also live it and experience it and to be able to hear the new perspective. I love that. And it, it, um, it makes everything about what we do better. And um, I would say, I'd like your sandwich analogy <laughs> about the customers. Also, I'm hungry, so I'm probably thinking food. I'm always thinking about food, but um, the sand the sandwich analogy, I like that one where the customer and kind of what they're responsible for and taking ownership of, and then the provider, internal, external, whatever, but the provider. So I think I'd like to explore incorporating sort of that concept of an awareness in our communications with our customers. I think that that'll, that'll help them understand maybe a little bit better when we're looking for engagement, what type of engagement, the nature of the engagement, sort of the responsibility of the engagement from them towards the entire solution. Yeah. I think so many hurt feelings and problems all come from mismanaged expectations. Agreed. And it is hard and challenging, but we have to do it. We have to continue to try to communicate effectively to our clientele. And even though they don't want to do stuff, <laughs> we have to help them understand that we need them. We love them. We care about them. And they have client responsibilities and we take our responsibilities to them seriously, but they have some responsibilities that go beyond just simply paying the bill. Here, here. Yeah. So yeah, the sandwich, I, I'm going to, we should just call that the CIS control sandwich. <laughs> that works. That's, re that's really where I, you know, and I just came up with the sandwich thing. <laughs> I figured it this works, is a good though. way to explain it because you got, <laughs> You got two crusty things on the outside and then you got, you know, the soft mushy bits in the inside and, and you really don't have a solution until you got a whole sandwich together. Yeah. I mean, who wants that peanut butter and jelly with no bread, right? Like what is that? Oh anyway? yeah. Or That's the bad. bread with no peanut butter and jelly. Again, not effective. It's not effective. Mm -mm. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Kathy. And it's been, Thank you. Uh, you know, good. I hope everybody has learned from, your experience, not only on the, uh, you know, the business owner, the business decision maker side, but also the, the IT service provider side. Thank you. I'm so glad I got to do this with you today, Felicia, and everybody listening. Glad you were here. So thank you.